Mark chapter 15. We'll start in verse 21. We're going to go through the end of the chapter. It's quite long, um, so we're going to read it as we go through it uh, today. And this is uh, sort of the last events of Jesus' life. This is also the last sermon in the Gospel of Mark. And yes, there is more that comes after this passage, but we preached it at Easter. So I'm not going to go back and do it again. Um, So we'll be in, again, Mark 15, verses 21 through 47. So when you turn there, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And as always, we need it more than we know. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for making us your people. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And we especially need this word today, for it deals with the salvation of our souls. It speaks of redemptive reality, a reality that affects our lives and demonstrates love, forgiveness, grace, mercy, truth, and justice. We know that your word searches our hearts as it's powerful, effective, and sharper than any two-edged sword. It speaks words we dare not ignore, so open our eyes and ears that we might hear your word, believe it, and respond with great faith in a great Savior. Thank you after a year of learning from John Mark that we've heard and applied the truths presented to us in this earliest eyewitness account of the life of Christ. And so we pray, speak one more time through the Gospel of Mark this morning. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray. Amen. And amen. In Hans Christian Andersen's tale of the Little Mermaid, which has actually very little to do with the uh, Disney version, the original story is dramatically different. There is a prince, there is a mermaid, there is a boat, there is a sea. That's about it. Um, But in the story, this beautiful young mermaid has fallen in love with a human prince. And the mermaid is this glorious singer beneath the sea and gives up her voice to be able to become human and love the prince. And the deal is, if she can woo him, she can remain human and receive an eternal soul. But if he marries another woman, the little mermaid will turn into sea foam, which is the fate of all mermaids. Well, despite her devotion to him, The prince's heart is enamored with someone else, a princess whom he believes rescued him from a shipwreck. However, the little mermaid was really the one who had saved him. She wants desperately to tell him that she was his savior and that she loves him, but she has no voice above the sea, no words that he can hear. And in the end, all three are sailing back to the prince's palace for his wedding to this other woman. And the little mermaid is about to turn back into sea foam when her sisters swim to the surface and they offer her a knife and a choice. If she will take the prince's life, she need not give up her own. I told you it's a little different than the Disney version. The magic can be reversed. She can become a mermaid again if only she will kill the prince. One of them must die before daybreak. And everyone is asleep on the boat. And silently the little mermaid approaches the prince and finds him in the arms of the other woman. 
And as Hans Christian Andersen writes, the knife trembled in the hand of the little mermaid. Then she flung it far away from her into the waves. The water turned red where it fell, and the drops that spurted up looked like blood. She cast one more lingering, half-feigning glance at the prince, and then threw herself from the ship into the sea and thought her body was dissolving into foam. The sun rose above the waters, and his warm rays fell on the cold foam of the little mermaid. The prince knows nothing of her sacrifice, nothing of her love. He didn't know she'd rescued him, given up her beautiful voice to become like him, and then exchanged her life for his. All this went on while he pursued another woman. She sacrificed all for her prince because she loved him, yet he never returned her love. Can you hear the gospel in that story? When the gospel's told like that, I find it's easy to understand. Despite all the legal terms that we use, like justification and penal substitutionary atonement, which are all valid and important, God's love didn't happen in a courtroom, but on a cross where Jesus threw himself from the ship into the sea. The story we see in scripture is a story of passion and sacrifice. A gift given from a lover to his beloved. In one final act of sacrificial love, he offers his life so that she might live. And in our passage today, we're in the middle of that act of sacrificial love. And we see people who, at least at this moment, don't get it. We also see a few people who do get it. And we have to understand that what we're witnessing here is an exchange. A life given out of unfathomable love to save people. And some people understand. And some don't. So let's take a look once more at this sacrifice. And the first thing we see are mocking hearts. Mocking hearts. Hearts. We start with verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. 
We've spent the last year in the Gospel of Mark. I have now preached through all four Gospels here. And we've come finally to the account of the crucifixion. And you'll see there's a theme that runs through this account. This theme is the fact that Jesus is mocked, insulted, jeered at, laughed at, humiliated, and shamed. It runs all the way through. In verses 16 to 20, the end of last week's passage, the soldiers were mocking him and making fun of him, spitting on him, jeering at him. Then we go down to verse 24. We see they stripped him. One of the things that made crucifixion so horrible is the stripping away of all dignity. And he's stripped naked and he's crucified naked. In verse 26, we have this ironic statement over him the king of the Jews. It's something you put over a throne, but not a cross. Go down to verses 29 and 30, and you have the passerby insulting him. You get to verses 31 and 32, and you have the religious leaders mocking him. At the very end of verse 32, we see even the thieves on the crosses next to him are reviling him. Mark wants us to see that Jesus not only died on the cross, he was shamed and humiliated. Why? Well, in two ways, the mocking reveals our hearts. First, it reveals our hostility to his claims. What what are they making fun of him for? Are they mocking him for the Sermon on the Mount? Probably not. Are they making fun of him for being a wise teacher? I don't think so. They're making fun of him for these claims that he was the king, that he was the savior, and that he was going to replace the temple. Those are incredible claims. And that's what they hate. And so that's what they're mocking. And that's why they're so derisive. The greatness of these claims brings out the hostility in our hearts. Let me say that again. The greatness of his claims brings out the hostility in our hearts. We can't stand the size of these claims. And if he didn't say those things, it would be different, but he said them. I mean, if he had said, you know, I'm a good teacher and I'm pointing the way to God, they might say, well, maybe you are, maybe you're not. (coughs) Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But when he says, I'm the unique son of God and son of man, I'm the savior of the world, I'm the king, then it's all or nothing. You can't just like him. You have to worship him or despise him. And we don't like that. We want to keep our options open. At one point in his book, Confessions, St. Augustine, is, uh, he's trying to figure out why when he was young, uh, he broke into a pear orchard and stole some pears. Those of you who have read the Confessions of St. Augustine may remember this. And he essentially he says, I'm going to summarize, he says, Why did I break into the pear orchard when I was young and steal the pears? He said, when A, I wasn't hungry, and B, 
I don't like pears. He's trying to figure out why he did it. And he realized it was only because, see, somebody told him he couldn't. He said he wouldn't have any interest at all in the pears except they were forbidden. And he realized at the core of his heart, at the core of all of our hearts, there's something that says through clenched teeth, nobody tells me how to live. There's something inside that says, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. And then Jesus shows up, and that comes out. The mockery comes out. It shows we're inherently hostile. We can't stand the greatness of his claims. And we don't like that all-or-nothing decision that it demands we take. So the mockery shows our hostility towards the greatness of his claims, but second, it shows our blindness to the weakness of his ways. Because Jesus is great in his claims, but he's weak in his ways. He comes humbly. He comes without a horse, without an army, without power. He comes in weakness. You know, if you look at it, you can almost see them saying, you know, these people that are surrounding the cross and watching him and mocking him, and we don't get all the words, but you can sort of imagine, you know, you couldn't be the king. You couldn't be the savior. You're too weak. If you were the king, we couldn't do this to you, and we couldn't do that to you. If God was really with you, you'd be strong. He'd be protecting you. He wouldn't let us do what we're doing. You couldn't be the savior. You couldn't be the king. God wouldn't show such weakness. He wouldn't take such suffering and pain. And the mockery shows we can't stand it when anything weak comes into our life, when suffering comes into our life. And we tend, when those things happen, when weakness and suffering show up, we, we tend to get hard. And we tend to mock and jeer. And when blow after blow comes into your life, when disappointment after disappointment comes into your life, you can start to mock the idea of the love of God and, and start to mock and hurt others. Maybe you've heard the phrase that hurting people hurt people. That's a true statement. Tend to do that. Not necessarily intentionally, but just because hurting people lash out. They mock and jeer and rant and argue. And a lot of times that gets directed towards God. A loving God, this is happening and this is happening. A loving God wouldn't do that. And what happens to us when we do that? We're mocking. We're getting hard. We're starting to despise and deride. Why do we do that? It's because inside we have this air of superiority. Mocking always requires superiority. The only way you can get hard and angry and cynical towards God when bad things are happening to you is because you think you know better than he does how your life ought to go. You know what ought to be happening, and he's not getting it right. But you know what the mockery is showing us? It's showing us that God, in fact, does work like this. If you insist that God can't be working in your life in difficulty, that he can't be working in your life through weakness, that he wouldn't let this or that happen, 
If you keep that up, you're going to miss the big things that God is actually doing. And you know what the real irony here is? Mark loves irony. It's throughout his gospel. He's an ironic writer. And I think the people are being ironic. Verse 31, he saved others, cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. You know, essentially, you say you're the king, but nobody's obeying you. You say you're the savior, but you can't even save yourself. God couldn't be saving the world through somebody like you. God couldn't be saving the world through weakness. God couldn't be saving others on a cross. They're being ironic, but guess what? He was saving others on a cross. That's the real irony. Jesus refused to be helped so we could be helped by God. Jesus refused to save himself so we could be saved. And when our hearts are mocking his claims, we're denying that. Right now, you may be looking at some bad stuff happening in your life. I mean, let's be honest, nothing's going according to plan right now. And I think many people are saying the same thing. If God was with me, he wouldn't let this happen. Could God really be working through this? And without even realizing it, we've become mockers. When the bad stuff comes, don't you dare think that God couldn't be working through it. The mocking of Jesus shows our hostility to the greatness of his claims and our blindness to the weakness of his ways. That shows what's in our hearts. And it ain't pretty. But it is pretty revealing. And then the scene in Mark, it shifts. It actually shifts several times. But it shifts from the mockers to the mocked. The camera focuses in on the cross, so to speak. And so we pick up verses 33 to 38 and darkness descends. Darkness descends. We've come to the actual moment of Jesus' death. All four of the Gospels take great pains to show us that all the events of Jesus' death happen in the dark. The betrayal, the denial, the mistrial, all happened at night. But now we get to the actual moment of his death, and this mysterious darkness descends, starting at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The sixth hour is noon. The ninth hour is 3 p.m. So from 12 noon to 3 p.m., it is dark. It is absolutely dark. And I said it's mysterious because a lot of people have tried to say, well, maybe there was a natural cause. What about an eclipse? Well, first of all, a solar eclipse doesn't create absolute darkness for more than a few minutes. It may take a while to happen, and it may take a while to 
unhappen. But the actual time of darkness is only a few minutes. Besides that, a solar eclipse can't happen at the time of the full moon. And Passover, when these events are taking place, is the time of a full moon. So this is a supernatural darkness. And therefore, it means something. But what? It signifies something. But what? In the Bible, physical darkness usually represents spiritual darkness. In fact, when Jesus is arrested, we don't see this in Mark, but we get this in Luke. In Luke 22, it says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus is using, <coughs> excuse me, is using the word darkness as a metaphor for everything that's wrong with us, everything that's wrong with the world, everything that's wrong with the human race. Physical darkness is a metaphor in the Bible for spiritual darkness. So what is that spiritual darkness? My wife's out of town, and she makes honey, lemon, tea sort of for me. And I made it this morning. It is not nearly as good as when she makes it. So if you're watching, Joanne, I miss you. Anyways, throughout most of the Bible, supernatural darkness stands for the judgment of God. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling us that Jesus is absorbing the just judgment of God against our sin on the cross. And you think that's a lot to deduct from darkness. Fair enough. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Amos. So you go back to Matthew and then keep going back about six books. If you get to Daniel, you've gone too far. I could go to many places. I mean, I could go to Exodus. That's pretty obvious. Exodus 10. What, what happens there when God was bringing judgment against the idolatry of Egypt? He sent a plague of darkness over the land. It's a symbol of judgment against the pretensions of Pharaoh to be a god, the resistance of Pharaoh to his sovereignty, the idolatry of, of that land. It's a judgment. It demonstrates God's power and that he has rendered a guilty verdict on Pharaoh and those who are oppressing his people. But throughout the prophets, you hear them over and over again warning the people of God that God is going to bring darkness on them because of their sin. One of those passages is found in the book of Amos. Amos chapter 8, verses 7 through 10. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. In other words, he's saying, I know the evil deeds that my people have done. I know them. I've seen them. I've seen you do them. And I'm not going to forget them. They're going to come back on you. Verse 8. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about, and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? Now, the other Gospels describe what happens at the crucifixion. There's an earthquake. Mark doesn't mention that, but the other Gospels do. Verse 9, And on that day, declares the Lord God, 
I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. See what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are saying? The day of judgment has come. But guess what? It hasn't fallen on God's people. It's fallen on his only son. The darkness prophesied against the people of God has come against his son. The darkness is a picture of the judgment of God against sin, and it's visited on his only begotten son. The New Testament commentator, William Hendrickson, has these moving words to say about this. The darkness meant judgment. The judgment of God upon our sin. The punishment, though, was borne by Jesus so that he, as our substitute, suffered most intense agony, indescribable woe, terrible isolation, and forsakenness. Hell came to Calvary that day. Hell came to Calvary that day, and the Savior bore its horrors in our place. That's what the darkness is all about. And Mark is bringing it to our attention, A, because it happened, but also because it meant something. It fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so Jesus absorbs the just judgment of God against our sin on the cross. And Mark is telling us what the cross is for, what the cross does, what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He absorbed the just judgment of God. And then we read verse 34. Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening here? On the one hand, the darkness comes down because Jesus is experiencing the full range of human evil. I mean, everything human beings can throw at somebody, every bit of evil the world can throw, Jesus has gotten. He's been rejected by his people. He's a man without a country. He's been sacrificed to political expediency by the Roman government. He's a victim of injustice. He's been abandoned by his closest friends who are trying to save their own skins. As we saw last week, there's the relational betrayal of Peter. He's been tortured and he's being killed. That's everything. That's not all he's getting because he's not just getting human evil. We said this was supernatural darkness. And when Christ starts crying out, he doesn't say, my friends, my friends. He says, my God, my God. He's losing God. What is this darkness coming down on him? Our judgment day is coming down on him. The rod of God's wrath has been stretched out, and now the plagues of Exodus and the horrors of Amos are coming down on him. His blood and water flow mingled down. He's experiencing supernatural darkness coming down on him. He's getting our judgment falling down on him. Jesus takes our judgment day. And as horrible as it is to have a spear in your side, as horrible as it is to die of suffocation, as horrible as it is to be tortured and beaten, the crown of thorns nails through your hands and feet, Mark doesn't say a thing about that. We know all those things from the other Gospels. 
Because Jesus is experiencing judgment day, a judgment day we deserve. And the irony here is just piling up. Jesus is forsaken by God, so he would never forsake us. Jesus is a judge who took undeserved judgment on himself so we wouldn't face the judgment we so richly deserve. Jesus refuses to live so that we could never die. And finally, the camera shifts once again from the dying back to the living. And this time it focuses in on a watching world. We pick up at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. We're near the end. We've come to the burial of Jesus. And we look at three people, or maybe I should say the three classes of people that the death of Jesus brings together. You have the Roman centurion, he's a pagan. You have the woman who stay with Jesus all through this time. And then you have Joseph of Arimathea, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling party, he's a Pharisee. Women, pagans, Pharisees. Three groups of people who don't usually hang out together. And yet something has brought them together. What are we looking at? These three are all making positive responses to the death of Jesus. When you go to the end of all four Gospels, when you get to the climactic events of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, let me just come right out and say it. All the guys are gone. All the male disciples vanish. They're scared. They're despondent. They're gone. When it comes to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the only followers of Jesus who are with him through all of these events are women. Look at verse 40. Of his father's followers, only women were there when he died. Women saw where he was buried, verse 47. And upon his resurrection, women were the one who saw him first. It's like the men disappear. Women dominate the final part of the narrative. And it, it's extremely interesting because in both Jewish and Roman culture, women's testimony had no legal status. Their evidence couldn't be brought into court. Their testimony wasn't valid. There was this understanding across the cultures of the ancient world about women's unreliability. And yet, in spite of all that, at the most crucial moment in the history of salvation, 
God trusts a group of women with the whole story. They're the lifeline of the gospel. Nobody else knows what's going on. Only the women see. Only the women know what God's up to. <coughs> Back for decades, the only disciples, the only followers of Jesus who could actually say, I witnessed it all. I saw the death, I saw the burial, I saw the resurrection, were all women. The next group we don't expect comes in the form of Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage, went to Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. <coughs> Here's what we learn about Joseph. He's a prominent man. He is a respected member of the council. We know from Matthew that he was rich, which is kind of implied here. In contrast to the women, Joseph is the consummate insider. Male, aristocratic, wealthy. He's in the inner ring. These other people are outsiders, and yet they're in the same passage together. They're responding to Jesus together. Let me point out, you see the little phrase, took courage? Joseph is getting a courage he didn't have before. It says Joseph took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body. It makes sense. It took courage to ask. The Romans had just tried Jesus and found him guilty of treason. The Jewish Sanhedrin found him guilty of blasphemy. John tells us that Joseph is a disciple, but secretly. And so now, for the first time, he's willing to say publicly what he's been keeping in secret. And that's not all. It's not just that Joseph is gaining courage. He's also gaining humility. He's not just getting stronger. He's also getting weaker. Look at verse 46. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. In the ancient Near East, when a person died and was buried, they washed the body, wrapped it in linen, anointed it with spices and perfumes. But because the sun is going down uh, to begin the Sabbath, it's a day of preparation, they can't do that. They don't have enough time. They're not able to finish the job. That's the reason the women went back on Easter Sunday morning in order to finish the job and put on the spices and the perfume. It's a simple act of love. It's a final act of devotion to a loved one. And we make it sound so good, but the reality is it's a dirty, disgusting job. To take down a dead body, beaten and bloody, is an awful job. And who was it that usually did it? In that society, who were the ones who always, always prepared the body? It was women. Men didn't do it. Women did, not prominent men, certainly not a respected member of the council. But here's Joseph, taking down Jesus' body, washing it, Wrapping it. We know from the text that there's women there. There are women watching. But Joseph is doing it. Something's happened. If Joseph was the way he'd always been, like any other man in Judea at the time, he would have looked over and seen those women and said, Hey, get over here. Come do this. This isn't my job. You do it. 
He doesn't do that. He's doing something culturally inappropriate. He's not standing on his dignity. Status isn't important. Power isn't important. Only Jesus is important. Finally, we have the centurion. This is a Roman officer who's come up through the ranks. Incredibly hard, incredibly hardened. A centurion is someone who'd seen death, had inflicted death to the degree that you and I can't even imagine. He's a hard man, a brutal man. He's a man who lived in spiritual darkness, and yet something's penetrated that darkness. And after the crucifixion, he becomes the first person to confess Christ. Now, I've been trying to figure out how this centurion is the first person to actually get it. It tells you something. And I think it's amazing. He heard Jesus cry, and he saw how he died. Now, unless you're a doctor or a nurse, you don't get to see many people actually die. But this guy was different. This guy had seen many people die. He'd seen people die under his own hand. He had seen a lot of death. But this one was different. He saw something about Jesus' death that was unlike any other death. And all I can say is the tenderness of Jesus' death must have pierced his hardness. And the beauty of Jesus' death must have pierced his darkness. His confession, verse 39, truly this man was the son of God his momentous. Why? Because the first line in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark refers to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is a striking contrast between the people around the cross. The people who we expect to get it, the disciples, they've been taught by Jesus repeatedly that this day would come are completely confused and stymied and missing. The religious leaders who everybody else expected to get it had looked at the very deepest wisdom of God and rejected it. But the women got it, and they came to watch him. Life, death, burial, and resurrection. They saw it all. Joseph of Arimathea got it, and he came to claim him, washed, wrapped, buried, respected. He did it all. And the centurion got it. And he came to proclaim him. A pagan, Gentile, Roman soldier, and now believer. These are the ironies of Christ. Jesus refused to be helped so we could be helped by God. Jesus refused to save himself so we could be saved. Jesus was forsaken by God so he would never forsake us. Jesus was the judge who took undeserved judgment on himself so we wouldn't face the judgment we so richly deserved. Jesus refused to live so that we could never die. And then he drew the outsiders and made them insiders. He took women, social outsiders, who were unreliable witnesses and entrusted them with the truth. He took Joseph, a moral outsider who's a wealthy, respected, 
prominent aristocrat and made him a model of humility. And he took a centurion, an ethnic outsider, a pagan Gentile who specialized in death and gave him life. You think he could do something with you too? John Mark would want you to know that that's the story of the king and his cross. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us one more time in the Gospel of Mark. You have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Thank you that you have given us a king, your only son, our Savior. Father, forgive us for, like the women, like Joseph, like the centurion, we're the outsiders. And sometimes we doubt that you can make us an insider. Bring us to the cross and help us to see Jesus. Help us to hear and know and believe and obey the story of the king and his cross. It's a story of amazing grace, and we thank you for it. Thank you for the gospel of Mark. Thank you for the glimpses he's given us of Jesus and his grace towards sinners like us. Give us, we pray, the faith to trust Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation of our souls. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and in your word and in this gospel to draw us ever closer to your son, our savior, and help us all to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever and ever and ever. Amen and amen. Amen.